Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator. I am your host. All right, well, welcome back, everybody. Today, I've got the pleasure of talking to an expert about summer reliability. You may have heard uh, in the news and otherwise that we got a hot summer ahead of us and that is expected to have an impact on the energy grid. So I brought in somebody who understands what the heck is going on and can help us sort it out a little bit. So um, John Mora, who's the director of reliability assessment and performance analysis at the North American Electric Reliability Corporation is with us here. John, that's a mouthful. mouthful. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Brad. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here and be able to kind of share, share the message we have. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell our audience a little bit about NERC and what its role is as the electric reliability organization. NERC is really has a pretty storied past and quite a history. We've been around for over 50 years in some form or other. We're a nonprofit, really unique international regulatory authority. We're kind of designated that authority through the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which calls for by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And we also have other governmental authorities that provide oversight and we work closely with in, in Canada. So really kind of this unique nonprofit authority that has the jurisdiction of the users, owners, and operators of what we call the bulk power system, which serves 400 million people and really is the largest, most powerful machine ever created. And it really requires a real good set instruction manual for how to operate and plan this system. It covers three interconnections. We have the Eastern, Western interconnections, and of course the Texas interconnection. And then we also have the Quebec interconnection. And these are the bulk power system essentially makes up that system. And they're all the generating resources and transmission networks throughout those interconnections that really constitute the, uh, the bulk power system. Thank you. I appreciate the high level overview. I feel like I could talk to you for an eternity about how ERCOT jurisdiction works, but I won't do that. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to ask you about this. What was it? A reliability assessment. Can you just share kind of one, what you looked at and two, what the high level findings were from that assessment? Yeah, that's great. So NERC's been around for 50 years and really one of the first things we started doing were assessments before there were mandatory standards and compliance with the standards. Really, it was about conducting assessments, getting the operators and planners together. They're all conducting their individual plans and long-term plans, whether it be in markets or whether it be through integrated resource plans. But at some level, you needed to kind of bring all these together and make sure uh, as a whole it's reliable. So we conducted these long-term assessments and we also conduct seasonal assessments. Our most recent summer reliability assessment, and these are again, part of our obligations as the ERO to conduct these in the way that they're approved by our board, which is an independent board. Um, but we work with the industry to gather all the data. So all this data and the ultimate quantitative and qualitative information that kind of 
goes into it all comes through the industry. And then we published the report. And the most recent one was a summer assessment, which was published about a month ago. Really what we found were there were some high risk areas that we really haven't seen before. And if you've been monitoring some of our assessments over the years, really since probably about 2016 or so, we've really raise a number of warnings around continued transformation, the rapid pace of the transforming grid, accelerated or disorderly retirements. And really when you think about reliability, reliability is the benefit of years and years of planning and preparation. There's a whole set of issues that have come to this point where we see ourselves at this pretty risky area and the number of risky areas that we've seen has really grown over some time, you know, there was a couple of years ago, we've highlighted concerns in Texas and we saw some challenges there and we've highlighted concerns in California. And we, of course, we've seen challenges there and those risks have really spread out across the Western interconnection and really have affected the, really the MISO area the, the most is really where we see the high risk areas. So really to kind of summarize the, the assessment that we did, there's really kind of three driving factors um, that we see. One is the early and disorderly retirements of power plants that are happening. Again, we're transitioning the system, really retiring a lot of coal and nuclear resources, more reliance on gas and our renewables and hydro systems. The second driving factor is increasing concern with weather, the changing climate, and really the impact to the resource mix. Climate and the weather are really some of the most influential factors in operating the bulk power system. They've always affected how much electricity load is on the system, but it's increasingly that they're affecting the availability of the resources, right? You, you can't power wind if there's no wind and this, the, the solar resources aren't really good at night. These are kind of just inherent challenges and you know, they're not bad things are just different, but that is really at the heart of some of the challenges we see. Like you said, in the early start of the pod, it's hot and we expect it to be hot this summer. So again, challenging. And then related to the climate, I think is the uh, wildfire risk with the drought. I know on your last potty really kind of talked about that. And that's certainly very, very impactful in the Western interconnection. And the, the final, third final driving factor is the electricity demand growth. Really since the 2008 recession, we've seen electricity demand growth kind of plateauing over several years. But it, most recently, we've seen quite a large uptick in the electricity growth. We're seeing record time highs in certain areas, whether it's electrification of transport sector or manufacturing sector or just population growth in certain areas that has compounded some of the challenges and keeping the pace with the growing demand, but also having enough resources. Well, I want to dig in a little bit on the MISO part of the discussion to try to like, I guess, understand it better. So the ERCOT and the CAISO California problems have been out there for a while. We see those things crop up. There are a bunch of reasons. There's a lot of talk about the market structure, retirements and resources that are certainly contributors to that cause. And then I guess the broader West, I think about, okay, some of the things you said, like weather related, right? Like wildfire, extreme heat, that part, I guess I kind of understand. The MISO one was a little bit of a surprise to me this year. It just doesn't seem to be one that's typically in that conversation of trouble spots. Can you maybe spend some time digging into that a little bit and like what those problems are? 
Yeah, that's a good observation. I would say it's probably pretty accurate. And I think it's really has to do with this way we characterize the disorderly power plants, retirements of, of power plants. MISO has a, a particular nuanced approach in how they look at their system and how their system really operates different than other kind of transmission operating areas in that it almost operates as three separate zones. There's kind of the south area, which is actually lush with capacity, good reserve margins there. But the real challenge is when you look at our microscope is really in the north and the central and really kind of even in the central area primarily. And this is really the fundamentally first off the challenge with reserve margins and how reserve margins are really looking at, you know, one peak capacity value for a certain area and really not capturing some of the energy risks that are associated with these off peak hour times that are starting to pose greater risk. So one issue is kind of the way mice is set up. So you really kind of got to zoom into the central and north zone to understand that risk. The other thing I would add, again, related to the, the disorderly retirement is how MISO is set up with, within its market structure. There's not a lot of time that's built in to really understand and give advanced notification to the transmission owner and operators really about the upcoming retirement. It might be 30 days or 60 days. It's a short term window where there's actually that certainty where you might retire. Uh, units might retire based on their own individual economic situation and other factors as well. Some of them have to do with state agreements or policies, but for a variety of reasons, there's not that advanced warning that you typically might have in states, and I'll compare and contrast, in states that are more, have this vertically integrated utility structure, have integrated resource plans where all energies are kind of coming together and agreeing about what the next three five, 10 years look like and have that certainty. So I think that that's one way the markets are really being challenged is they're providing this capacity, perhaps not looking at these energy risks and incentivizing that. And then kind of also not really having the incentives or the capability to keep generation online to ensure adequacy of the system, which is also a a little bit of a nuance between kind of reliability must run situations where without that power plant, you wouldn't be able to maintain the stability of the system that I think really is important to recognize is there's been action that's been spurred by our reports release. And so, you know, there's always the question is these resources didn't retire and they're staying on, does that change the risk assessment? And, and I think those are, those are valid things to say. And I would say is, you know, but we put this assessment way out to provide this advanced warning so so that actions can be taken. And so while resources might be around, maybe they've switched their retirement schedules, there's still that concern because these resources are legacy. We see they're quite aged. We see forced outage of coal units at the highest they've ever been. So they're no longer as reliable as we're used to them in the first place. Not to mention stockpile inventories that are really degrading in certain areas. Yeah, I was I was just gonna say that. I'm glad you brought it up. That's one of the things I hear about often is how difficult it is to get coal and how hard it is to schedule trains, et cetera. So even if you keep a unit operating, we don't know that we're gonna have 30 days of supply on site, right? Because you weren't planning for that have to make adjustments. And so we got to figure out how to do it. 
I want to dig into something you said a moment ago, because I, I had a version of this conversation with somebody else. So you've got two different market structures that are operating with it. So you've got the traditionally regulated structure where people have integrated resource plans. And we see retirements coming uh, and we sort of know what that's going to look like and adjustments are made. Uh, in the marketplace, in these restructured markets, uh, that isn't necessarily the case, right? It's out of the money. You shut it down. That's sort of the deal. It's a challenge. The thing that I'm interested about is the interplay between the two things, right? So, all right, you're operating in MISO and you're in a vertically integrated state, call it Missouri. So there are challenges because there are some retirements in some adjacent states, which means in effect, or I would assume it means that some power supply from Missouri is going across the border to Illinois or some other place, right? And so those challenges come into the system, even though you're vertically integrated and have done an integrated resource plan, that connectivity can still have a bearing on the outcome, right? It just seems like a challenge that policymakers have to think about, and frankly, that operators have to think about, and maybe at least a different discussion about what reserve margins have to look like. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're pointing to like the challenge of our modern power system where, you know, we ultimately sometimes get criticism as an industry, I think about, you know, NERC's got standards and there's states and there's provinces and the federal and, you know, all these authorities, but who is ultimately in charge. And I think that that's probably some fair criticism, but for NERC setting, we couldn't possibly do this alone. We have to work with all of our 1800 registered stakeholders, industry stakeholders, but also all 50 states and jurisdictions, because I think they all have a different part to play. And in some cases, that's, it's kind of brilliant, this model, because energy is fundamentally a people issue and it really takes a village and involves all of us. So one of the nuanced things I think we don't expect, I think the average consumer to know this difference, but. Really, when we're talking about NERC reliability standards and what we can do, we're limited in some respect. We can't order the construction of generation. We can't order the construction of transmission. We're really focused on interconnection reliability and we're at, and we're expressly prohibited from really developing any certain market solutions or really, you know, any, any of those tools. So I think this is really the nexus where the states have the ultimate kind of adequacy responsibility. They have to understand these energy risks. I think one more to caution for them as we're kind of transitioning our grid is we're looking at resource adequacy, which is where the states come into play. They're solely relying on reserve margins to say they're good or they're not good. I think that is probably insufficient. I think we, we would say that that is insufficient, that we really need better adequacy signals or energy signals so that the states can understand what they need and that they can bring that to the larger markets that develop the solutions to get there. And, and I think that that's the nexus because we really need to build things around reliability. And, and I think when we do that, and then the policymakers from outside of NERC really have to then balance liability, environment, and economics. When we started this discussion, I think you, you kind of said two things that, that stick with me as it relates to this challenge, right? Number one, you said, look, we put this assessment out a month ago and people are paying attention and people are taking action, right? So in a lot of ways, the system's working just like 
uh, we designed and wanted it to. So I got to applaud your efforts there. You said something else that I think I'm going to quote you on, and sometimes I'm going to steal it and pretend like you never told me, which is that reliability is the benefit of years and years of planning. And it seems like we're at a little bit of an inflection point with all the changes that we're seeing on the system right now, right? So what are we going to do with this information and how are we going to plan given climate heat, all the stuff, drought, like the the many perils. I think we had a locust last year, you know, a pandemic. How are we going to get out of this? Is this a short-term one summer problem, right? Is this a thing where we had, okay, there's some resources that are scheduled for retirement. We've got some new ones that are going to come online in the fall. So we good, or is it like, no, no, this is, we're in a period of grid transition and we've got to be prepared for this type of stuff going forward. Like, how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, Brad, that's a great question. And I can tell you, you know, we're already on to our winter assessment and we're conducting our long-term assessment, which kind of looks out 10 years right now. There's really not much on the forefront around large solutions. And so we really need to kind of start seeing in order to really get to Our goals around decarbonization and integrating more renewables and decarbonized resources really need to start thinking about what that plan looks like technically in order to to get there. We can build as much solar and wind as we can, but we'll only add to the congestion and we'll only add to uh, the curtailment of those resources because there won't be anywhere for that power to go. If you look at a country like Germany, they're, they're in that same boat and they'll probably burn more coal this year than probably almost any country in Europe um, because of the challenges. It's really all about transmission. Transmission is how we're going to unlock and be able to preserve reliability and meet reliability standards with uh, the new resource mix that we, that we want. And that is a 10 year to 15 year, the critics say never, will never happen building transmission, which is a concern because there's really no way to be able to integrate the amount of wind and solar and batteries we would need without that level of transmission. So I worry about that and making sure the grid is keeping pace and not changing too rapidly. We're already at the bleeding edge. And we've taken a lot of the reliability margin that we've enjoyed for years and years and years. And we are still a highly reliable system. And we want to make sure that we continue to be that highly reliable system. So I would keep an eye out on our long-term assessments. Uh, This kind of gives you that outlook. Uh, But I would say we really have to have some fundamental changes, some different policies, perhaps in case of emergency break glass type of tools in order to be more confident about the future of reliability. Yeah, no, look, I appreciate that. It's also a little bit heartening to hear you talk about the need for transmission. I feel like that's one of the discussions I find myself in constantly and the place it lands is we could just connect a lot more stuff. And if we connected a lot more stuff, we'd be building a more resilient system. We could get power from where it is to where the people are. We could get rid of some of these chokeholds that exist on the system by creating more connectivity. So it's good to hear you beating that drum. I look forward to that section in the reliability report. I think that would be awesome. Great. Yeah. That would be a good one. And I'll also say, since you're in Atlanta, 
there's a big nuclear plant up near you that is supposed sure. to bring more capacity online. So there are, and nuclear is kind of that other discussion that we hear about a ton in the industry about this next nuclear renaissance that we're seeing with obviously units three, four at Vogel over there coming online, but then a lot of talk about SMRs, et cetera. So yeah, well, the nuclear here, and it's, this isn't a, a political statement, but more of, you know, we really need it to succeed, this particular plant in Vogel. And it's merely the fact that it's providing a pathway for the future of nuclear in this country. Yeah. Well, excellent. Thanks, John. I really appreciate you um, giving us some time, giving our audience some time and uh, explaining what's going on this summer. Happy to do it, Brad. Thanks. Joining me next to talk about uh, the NERC assessment and share some of his perspective is Scott Aronson, who is the Senior Vice President of Security and Preparedness at the Edison Electric Institute and also part of the Secretariat at the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, which deals with a lot of threats and risks. Scott, thanks for joining. Appreciate you giving us some time today. Hey, great to be with you, Brad. All right. So help our listeners understand what the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council is and what role it plays as you think about out of risk. Sure. It's a mouthful. So we'll just call it the ESCC. And what the ESCC is an industry-led body that brings together senior executives from all segments of the sector. So not just EEI's members, but the cooperatives, municipals, independent power generators, uh, Canadians. It is a North American grid to partner at the highest levels of government to prepare for and respond to all hazards, all threats facing the energy grid of North America. So it started because of cyber and physical security threats to the grid and the need to share intelligence and partner between industry and government to protect some of the nation's most critical infrastructure. But it's evolved as a response mechanism to all sorts of hazards, storms, wildfires, mix, and it has really become an important body where CEOs and senior administration officials from each of the last three administrations have worked really closely to prepare, protect, detect, defend against threats to the grid and then respond and recover when things do happen. Great. Well, then you're probably a good person to ask since you're spending so much time interacting with CEOs and senior leaders from those electric companies. You know, I've heard from John a bit about kind of the NERC threat assessment. What are the companies you're talking to doing to address the risk that's identified by the assessment? Yeah, I think John hit a lot of points really well. And one of the things that I've heard NERC say a lot is that their threat assessment or their summer risk assessment is a forecast, not a prediction. After hearing a forecast of potential threats, you take action, right? If it's forecast to rain tonight, I'm going to take an umbrella with me. And so electric companies, all of the different segments of the sector have been working really closely to address not just this summer's risk, but as John was talking about, we're already looking at winter assessments. And frankly, we want to look long-term. You know, If we're seeing risks to reliability today, then we're likely to see those similar risks in years to come. And so the ESCC, EEI's members, our government partners have been looking at the different risks to reliability. I think we're focusing a lot in this podcast on generation and capacity and the bulk electric system itself, which makes a ton of sense. But if you think about all of the different risks we're facing, most of them are external to the grid. It's not just about generation capacity. It's about the ability to have coal delivered. It's about the supply and demand constraints that we see, not just for 
for commodities for generation fuel, but for all sorts of things, whether it's pole top transformers, whether it's conductor, wire, whether it's poles, whether it's the shortages around chip manufacturing that are impacting smart meters. I could go on and on. So the industry has been convening chief procurement officers to look over the horizon at what we might need to be able to keep the system operational or respond and recover should there be an incident. We're looking at, as I mentioned, coal deliveries and the ability to ensure that we've got all of the fuel that we need to keep the system operational. Some of this is coming out of the pandemic and all of the labor issues, ensuring that we've got the crews and the highly skilled, hard to replace workers that help to keep power plants running, that help to keep our operational facilities running, that help to do the storm restoration when incidents do happen. So you're seeing an awful lot of different industry groups convene to look at the forecast that NERC has put out there about potential risks to reliability and take actions to mitigate those risks before we have power outages. Great. Thanks, Scott. You know, one of the other topics that kind of comes up a lot and one that irks me a little bit is all these discussions about how the clean energy transition is sort of the proximate for some of these problems. And like, it's just you know, it's just not true, right? But since I've got you here, since I have an expert that can sort of like talk about clean energy and the role clean energy plays in all this, would you mind helping dispel some of those myths to our audience here? Yeah, it's an important point that irks me too. The clean energy transformation is not, as you said, the proximate cause for potential reliability impacts. In fact, a lot of the clean resources that we are putting onto the grid are providing additional power to power the economy. One of the cleanest sources of energy is hydroelectric. One of the things that we're having the most trouble providing right now is hydroelectric because of the drought and the extreme heat in the West. So as we see this uptick in severe and extreme weather, as we see economic challenges coming out of the pandemic and now with hyperinflation and with all the things that we need to do with the supply chains, what we need to be able to do is walk and chew gum. So it is deal with the current threats to reliability by ensuring that we have the ability to have dispatchable resources that can respond to the change in where and how people live so that we can ensure a more decarbonized energy grid for the future because that is going to continue to onboard new resources that allow us to reflect both future energy usage needs and the imperative to decarbonize this economy, not just the energy sector, but the transportation sector, the manufacturing sector, and others, so that we don't have the extreme weather that we have been facing. So I view the electric companies who are both balancing the grid today and planning the grid of the future as doing some really extraordinary work to ensure that we have that decarbonized, but also reliable energy future. Thank you, Scott. We always appreciate having you on and just helping us really understand a lot of the things that are going on around here. So as always, thanks for the time and we look forward to having you on again soon. Back at you. I appreciate your time. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.